Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another Tuesday night extravaganza with Reverend John St. Germain. The most exciting corner on the internet, if you happen to be me, anyway. Uh, when I make it to another Tuesday, I'm excited. Uh, you know, heck, I'm getting up there in age. Any day I wake up is a good day. Although, you know, those of us who believe in passing to the veil and a happy afterlife, maybe when you don't wake up on this side, it's an even better day. Who knows? However, we're going to talk about near-death experiences and people who see the other side, aren't we? Is it always a pleasant experience? Maybe not. Come back in just a minute, and we shall discuss people who did not see heaven, but they saw the other side of that rather unpleasant coin. Come back in just a minute. The Native American flute actually sounds that way. Um, you, if you hear that and you hear these uh, swooping notes, uh, you're tempted to think it's electronic, but you can actually do that with a Native American flute. Um, you do it by partially covering the hole and controlling your breath. And um, it's really believed in uh, that you're capturing spirits when you play that flute. It was these flutes were played by the Native American men to attract mates and conjure spirits, and you'll hear wolves and owls and uh, various birds in the music and the wind. It's called capturing the wind sometimes. It's a remarkable instrument. It's not just music. It's it's magic. It's conjuring spirits. Um, very remarkable. 
instrument. And when someone who is a master plays it, um, there are things that can be done with it because of its construction that uh, I'm not sure can be done with uh, any other uh, woodwind instrument of my um, acquaintance. I don't I don't know. There are sounds and effects that uh, um, if you read up on it, uh, musicologists say they're not quite sure how some of these um, vibrato and uh, other effects are accomplished. I think it's spirits myself. Welcome to the Crystal Silence League show where we just go off on tangents about all sorts of stuff <laughs> because that you know I can I don't have anybody telling me not to. That's the beauty of blog talk radio. We're uncensored, uncontrolled, unpopulated and uh as far as I know um unlistened to. Now actually we have statistics here. I can see how many people download um and listen to these shows and we're not doing badly, really. There's several hundred people that actually download and listen to these shows on podcasts. I was once told that uh, many people prefer to listen to it on podcasts because at 8 o'clock, if people listen to the show, because of the soothing and dulcet uh, tones in my voice, uh, they tend to go to sleep. Not because I'm boring, but because my voice is very relaxing. And it is. I have a hypno voice. I was a hypnotist for many years, and I cultivated this resonant, relaxing, hypnotist voice, and it sticks with you. It just sticks with you. And I find this is very useful when I do readings, too, because people come to me and they think I'm going to be the voice of doom, and they're very nervous. And I talk to them. I say, now everything's going to be fine. Just sit and relax. Let me see your hands, and I'll hold your hands for a minute. Just take a deep breath and relax, and just allow the soothing energies of the crystals around you to infuse their healing and soothing energies into you and just relax and make yourself at home. And just, I'm not going to tell you anything bad. Everything's going to be okay. So it's a very relaxing voice. So, um, and then, uh, Tony, I in chat says, some of us listen live. Some people are not owls. That's true. And I pity the poor fool who listens to me on the way home. You know, you'd fall asleep at the wheel and drive off into the ditch, but, and we're not responsible for that, by the way, we're not responsible. I was doing meditation exercises during the first few shows where I'd have people take a deep breath and relax, deep breath and relax. Now imagine all your worries going out like butterflies in your exhale and they go to the horizon. Every time you exhale, your worries and you relax and relax and your tensions go out, out, out. And I realized I was doing a hypnotic induction basically and people were driving going, ah, I'm relaxing. I'm so relaxed. I'm so relaxed. And I said, people are going to fall asleep and drive off the road. I can't do this. I was going to end every show with a meditation, and I said, I really can't do that. But what I think I might do is um, record, and I keep meaning to do this, record a downloadable um, series of meditations with soothing music and soothing voice, and you can download and um, meditate at your discretion, not behind the wheel of a car. You know, 5 o'clock, PST is drive time, right? Well, some people are driving home at 8, I guess. But a good thing to listen to before you go to sleep, my show. The Crystal Silence League was founded around 1917 by Claude Alexander Conlon, a magical adept. They say when he was on the vaudeville stage, people lined up for a mile to get in to see his public demonstrations of mental power, telepathy, and ESP. And this was long before the term ESP was coined. It was called clairvoyance in those days. And if you see 
vaudeville posters of those times, when Alexander was performing, you would see in big letters, Alexander, the man who knows, and in small letters at the bottom, Harry Houdini, the escape artist, which must have really graded Houdini. Now, we remember Houdini longer now because Houdini's performing career spanned 30 years. Uh, Claude Alexander Conlon spanned about nine years, nine to ten years, because he made millions of dollars, very successful, started a publishing company, and he started the Crystal Silence League for the purpose of projecting positive prayer and affirmation for all those who need it. And when he passed away into the silence around 1954, the League went with him until, of course, Missionary Independent Spiritual Church brought it back to life cybernetically on the web. And around 2007, I think. And you can find us www.crystalsilenceleague.org. And if you go there, you find a gift shop, and you find literature, and you find a newsletter that I used to edit. It's on hiatus right now because we're reorganizing everything. Because now we're the Association of Independent Spiritual Churches, and everything's under our umbrella. We've become quite big these days. We had to reorganize our various AIR, A-I-R-R, and Crystal Silence League and Missionary Independent Spiritual Churches and Divine Harmony Spiritual Church and all of our other churches and um, uh, oh, oh man, everything Crystal Silence League. Uh, and there's a lot of other activities we engage in. It's becoming too much to handle separately. We put it all under an umbrella under the Association of Independent Spiritual Churches. The Crystal Silence League is something that's nonprofit. We do it. We finance it ourselves. Um, Although we do have a gift shop, and proceeds of the gift shop do help go to um, defray some of the expenses. It's very expensive to keep everything going up. Uh, everything that we do for the league is voluntary. I don't get paid for doing the show. Uh, none of the pastors get paid for um, uh, praying or for uh, what we do. Many of us download. Give you some behind the scenes here. Many of us every day will print out as many as 10 prayers or more, and we put them on our altar, uh, burn candles and pray for as many as 10, sometimes more a day, 10 people a day. And when you go to the Crystal Silence League uh, prayer page, you'll see prayers. We get, I I can't even tell you how many we get a day. Um, I went to remove some prayers, and uh, I put them 100 to a page so I could go down to remove the prayers, and some of them had a couple of days' date, so there were 50 to 60 to 75 a day. So I was saying we were getting 100 to 200 a week. We may get 100 to 200 a day. So I, I can't even tell you how many we get a day now, hundreds. So um, you can pray for someone and click on a button, and it says you have been prayed for. You'll get an email. We also have buttons there now where you can remove your own prayer. You don't have to ask us pastors to remove it for you. So you can remove your own prayer. That's a great boon to those of us like me uh, <laughs> who have been going back in time for several months or years trying to find uh, – someone say, can you remove my prayer? Well, when was it? Well, I don't remember. Well, when? Well, I don't know. It was sometime last year, and I have to go through 1,700 prayers trying to find your prayer, right, So to remove it for you. So now you can remove your own prayer, which is kind of cool. Um, 
there's a gift shop. You can buy books and literature and crystals and crystal balls and uh, all kinds of nifty things. We have our newsletters archived, and you can download those and read them. And I promise you we'll have a newsletter again one day. And uh, in the newsletters, there's a crystal of the month, and we always have a crystal of the week. And this week, um, we have um, a very um, – a, a very interesting one, uh, I think. I think so. Anyway, that um, that is known as a cordierite, and a cordierite uh, is a bluish purple stone. So uh, it can harmonize with the crown chakra or the third eye, depends on its uh, on its uh, tone, really. And if you uh, Move it back and forth in the light, you'll see it changing color. It's like alexandrite in that um, sense. Sometimes you'll see green going through it. Even um, now, if you um, put it in certain light, you may even see yellow gray or amber um, and different other colors in it, depending on what kind of light goes through it, or uh, the t- the piece you get, so it it's really a shapeshifter. Now I'll tell you that this is uh, a wonderful stone for many things. Um, it can be used for uh, inspiring inspiration, uh, activating your inspiration. Um, if you feel like you're blocked in your inspiration, your creativity, a very good stone. That's what it's most often used for. Um, it's also used a lot. Uh, it's 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 synonymous with iolite. Um, iolite um, and uh, cordialite are practically the same chemically. The only difference I see in them is the range of color. Both used in helping you overcome addiction in that they help you understand the roots of it. You know, if you're addicted to something, you can't hold this stone and go, okay, I'm kicking it by this stone. It helps you understand the roots of it. It, um, It's uh, very good um, to help you uh, basically with moral and ethical strength of any kind. Uh, Say you're addicted to overspending. You know, when this is my biggest stress thing. If I'm stressed, I'll tend to want to buy stuff. I love that feeling of getting stuff in the mail, and I can justify it for anything. I say, oh, I need stuff for my my church. You know, I need I need uh, this. How many of you who do readings have dozens of d- different decks of cards and oracles? You only need one. You only you need a, one deck of cards. You don't need all those different decks of cards. You only need one. But you can justify it, right? Say, oh, you know, here's a new here's a new tarot deck. I got to have this one. I love this one. I got to have this. And your excuse usually is that you get inspiration from it. You only need one. You really only need one. The old fortune tellers, the old root workers, had a deck of natty old bicycles or something, and they they used that one deck forever until until the uh, back was worn off of it. You need one. And I'm as bad as anybody. If you went into my chapel, you would see shelves full of um, decks and all kind. Oh, all kind. I, I, but you know, I can give you an excuse. I write books on divination methods. 
Yeah, that's my excuse. Books. You buy books. Oh, I got to have this book. Here's another book on tarot reading. How many books do you need? Yeah. Um, but it can help you stop that. Yeah, it can help you stop that. Um, so this is a very uh, a good thing to get to the root. You know, why do you do that? You know, why do you do that? Mostly, I think we're bored. You know, we're bored. People say I'm an information junkie. Well, you know, junkie is a good term for it, isn't it? So um, this is. This will help you with psychic awareness. It can help you with um, astral projection. It can help you with all these psychic stuff because, you know, there's your crown chakra and your third eye chakra, right? It can help you with past life work. It can help you with um, um, exploring other dimensions. Um, so it's very, very neat, a very handy stone. And... Um, you know, get your piece. Not that expensive. Work with it. See what you can come up with. It, being a, a a silicate, very hard. You don't have to worry about it dissolving in water. You know, like a selenite. You put selenite in water, you, you can get a handful of sand. Um, so you can just drop this in water. If you want to make an elixir, drop it in. Put it in the sun. Put it in the moon. Um, take it out. Add a few drops of brandy and uh, do with it what you want to do. But. Uh, that's our uh, weird little stone of the week, uh, uh, cordierite, very similar to iolite, and I hope you enjoy that. I don't have any, like, segue music to play, like, dee, 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 or an announcer that says, and that's our stone of the week, but, you know, that's our stone of the week. You want to go to www.crystalsilenceleague.org and go to the prayer page, you can pray along with me. And I'm always anonymous with this. I never announce anybody's names, but I do announce the prayer ID number. And uh, if uh, anybody ever wants me to not pray for him, just send me an email and say, hey, next week, if, you, if I come up, don't pray for me. But otherwise, I'm going to pray for you. And so we can always start with prayer ID 74206, who prays for an uncrossing. And she prays that God may you uncross and cleanse, A, her home and business from all evil, negativity, curses, jinx, evil eye, witchcraft, and all all ill will intentions. Amen. And oh, yes, by the way, Cordierite is excellent if you're, if you're busting a jinx. This is a wonderful stone for busting jinxes. And I re- remember that because I was in uh, doing one of these meetup groups, and they were talking about crystals, and they were talking about eyelight. And I said, you know, that's good for jinx busting. And uh, some guy, well, it's good, I guess, if people think they're jinxed. And I said, no, it's good for jinx busting. It's good for lifting the evil eye. In certain traditions, purple stones are good for lifting the evil eye. You know why? Because third eye, right? And uh, he said, well, I guess if people think they're jinxed, they are jinxed. At which point, I just kept my mouth shut. And this woman said, no, no, there are people that are jinxed. He goes, well... You know, people believe that, and that, and uh, at which point I was going to keep my mouth shut, but I said, you know, sir, um, and this I'm just repeating something one of my teachers told me a long time ago. Um, if you believe that magic works only because you believe it works, you don't know anything about magic or belief. And it started a great discussion with people, and he was one of these people that thinks that, uh, that the only reason – you're cursed is because you think you're cursed. Now, one of the big things about lifting a jinx is that a lot of times it's like depression. You know, someone will be living under clinical depression for a long time, 
and they get on antidepressants, and you know the brain chemistry is good, but they've been depressed so long it's become a lifestyle, and they've developed a habit of everything going wrong, so they still think they're depressed, and getting over that mindset is uh, clinical work. That's why you have talk therapy, right? And so lots of times the jinx will be lifted, and you know the person's jinx is lifted, but they're so used to things going wrong that they sabotage themselves, and that's part two of the work of someone like me or anybody else who does jinx lifting is getting their mind trained to a positive mindset. And yes, there are people who think they're cursed and they're not, think they're jinxed or they're not, and that's true. That's why you have to learn to tell the difference. So this this good woman wants to be lifted from all magic, evil will, intentions, and amen. And let's pray that her uh, her cross conditions are uncrossed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we have um, prayer ID seven four two zero three who prays, praying for a coworker, and she prays that MS that her heart, mind, soul, and spirit reflect God. A person never know what a person is going through until they go through it themselves. This job has nepotism going on. Nepotism, by the way, is when um, the bosses hire their own relatives. Um, and it's a lot of unfair things. I pray for this facility and all the workers and the clients that everything that walk, talk, or perform any duties on a day-to-day basis, that everything they do reflect policy and God's unchanging hand. All of the chaos will come to a close. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. We have prayer ID 74202, a young entrepreneur who is praying for business, abundance, and prosperity. And he says, Gracious God, remember us, we beseech thee, in our work. This day, if it be thy will, give unto us a prosperous day. May all of our work be done well. Prosper with thy blessings. All of us who are thus striving to regulate our dealings in business by the rule of truth. And if difficulty compass us in the world, quicken thou within us such a desire of laying up treasure in heaven as may cause us to accept thy perfect will, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There's someone who is brought up in the church and knows how to pray. And here we have prayer ready 74200 who wants to pray to ward off unjust evil. And she prays. Archangel Uriel, I have been unjustly accused by enemies of doing many unjust evils or sabotage in someone's marriage and in others' career and college studies. Because of their unjustified accusations, I am being hurt and punished by their witches and sorcerers that don't know the truth about the accuser's lies and their greed and stupidity. If only they really knew me, they wouldn't hurt me in any way. Please put a stop on their evil, on their slanderous lies. I'll be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. So apparently her enemies have hired workers to throw on her, and it's unjust work. Well, if it's unjust work, it won't come through. So, you know, pray, pray and that you're shielded, and this will bounce off of you. Like rain off an umbrella. Prayer ID 74198. This very week of July 8th, 2018. RCM being hired with fair pay, fringe benefits, full time permanent 
stationary under the full armored protection of a God-engraved day, Jesus paved the way. Same line continued from my ability to spiritually sprint when walking, become totally cured and healed in an educational field or classroom. I asked the same placement as described and a financial blessing miraculously wiping out all my debts. RB contacting me directly. Prayer ID 74197. There's thyroid and hormonal problems. And she prays, I pray that my underactive thyroid and any other health problems that's causing me weight gain, hair loss, and lack of energy will be healed as soon as possible. Amen. And prayer ID 74195 prays that she can start a job and get all the paperwork needed. She says she applied and had been offered a great job. The problem is she's been given tough obstacles before I can possibly start. I need this job right now more than anything, and I've been trying to get the paperwork I need to start. Please help me remove these obstacles and allow me to start this job so I can be okay. I'm struggling so bad right now, and this seems like the only chance to move back home is by getting this job. Amen. May all your roads be open. Prayer ID 74194, who says, Please, God Almighty, help my loved one. Let this exam be easy. There shall be no nervousness, no panic or worries. Let tomorrow's exam, and that is tomorrow, Wednesday, be good, easy, and let it be successful. God bless. Please bless and extend a helping hand. Amen. And let's do one more, and this is prayer ID 74192. My mentally abusive ex put me and my kids out on the street. We had come stay with his friend, and I need money for living expenses. I pray to find a nice home for me and my boy, and eventually get a new car. Need money, miracle blessing to come to me ASAP. Need doors to open for me concerning money, business, and real estate. Amen. Two words. Lawyer up. And let's have a moment of silent prayer for all those in need and affirmation and comfort.
Amen. Well, we've been talking about the near-death experience, which uh, I'll admit it's a topic that's fascinated me forever and is the uh, the closest uh, thing that we have from an eyewitness account to the afterlife. And it sort of silences the smart alecks who say, well, the, o- the only uh, evidence we have of the afterlife is the, uh, the owner's son, and, uh, you know, he's... He's not been talking for 2,000 years. And uh, we have eyewitness accounts of the afterlife, right? And so you can understand why people have been very interested in studying this under a scientific light. And many people have, and scrupulously. And we're going to look at some uh, – that's why we're going to look at this for a while. Uh, I've been very interested in this. And of course, as you might imagine, because it's been examined, and because this is one of the more uh, telling uh, evidences that there may be something to an afterlife, the uh, materialists have also attacked it with great vigor. And we'll, we'll look at some of that if you'd like me to. We'll we'll look at some of their uh, objections and alternate explanations and why they don't hold water, because. The science just doesn't support the explanations. So um, we're we're talking about the uh, the positive near death experiences when people uh, have an out of body experience when they're near death or when they're dead. And we're going to look at one where the woman was dead. She was dead because she was medically killed for brain surgery. She was killed. Blood drained from her body. Body temperature lowered to sixty degrees. She was dead flat brainwave, dead. And she had one of the most intense and detailed near-death experiences. At that point, call it a death experience ever recorded. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because it'll blow your mind. And uh, so um, we we look into this and we say, well, what's going on here? So most people have, they have this, they leave the body, they uh, see themselves often from a bird's eye view, um, there's a tunnel, there's a, uh, spiritual being of light. They see relatives. Then they're told, you know, it's not your time. You have to go back. But not everybody has a pleasant experience. Um, I first heard about people visiting hell in a near-death experience, uh, in the eighties, I guess, uh, it was one of those shows, uh, you know, in the 80s, there was a huge number of shows on network television. You know, back in the 80s, we only had a few channels. And, uh, but there were a lot of shows, believe it or not, that's incredible, um, and a lot of shows about the paranormal. And there was one about near-death experiences. And there was a, a show about uh, this, and they interviewed people who had died and seen hell and came back. And I was very intrigued by this. And I... I Looked at the book. It was called Beyond Death's Door, and it was by a cardiologist named uh, Dr. Rawlings. And it was very chilling because he collected a number of anecdotes of people who died and saw a less than pleasant afterlife. So uh, his first exposure apparently came – there was a uh, – 
he had a, a fellow come in for a cardiac stress test and went to full cardiac arrest. Boom, dropped down dead as attack. And during a tent of being revived, the mailman started screaming that he was being dragged to hell. So, so every time the physician, um, uh, Dr. Rawlings, would uh, stop trying to revive him, the man would um, would scream, "Help me! I'm being dragged back into hell!" And it was utterly terrified, as you can imagine. So, um, this man's experience led um, um, Dr. Rawlings to conclude that many people may not. Uh, always have this uh, uh, pleasant event, but they may experience hell, not heaven, but hell. But then they may forget about it because this uh, guy forgot. He, afterward, he, he forgot. He didn't have any memory of it when he survived. Now, I'll tell you that uh, this intri- intrigued me too because Dr. Rawlings is from Tennessee. He was at, uh, in a Nashville physician. So I'm thinking, hmm. So, Rawlings uh, uh, theorized that these experiences are more common than other near-death experience. Uh, 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 what do you call them? Uh, documenters, but might know because people tend to forget them because they're they're so horrifying. Um, and interesting enough, though, people seem to experience hell in different ways. Um, one of the descriptions, um, for instance, and some people do experience the traditional fire and brimstone, a burning hell. Some describe it a cold hell. And one person, um, here, here's, I'll just read this to you. I remember getting short of breath, and then I must have blacked out. Then I saw that I was getting out of my body. The next thing I remember was entering this gloomy room where I saw in one of the windows this huge giant with a grotesque face that was watching me. Running around the windowsill were little imps or elves that seemed to be with the giant. The giant beckoned me to come with him. I don't want to go, but I had to. Outside was darkness, but I could hear people moaning all around me. I could feel things moving about my feet. As we moved on through this tunnel or cave, things were getting worse. I remember I was crying. Then for some reason, the giant turned me loose and sent me back. I felt I was being spared. I don't know why. So he, Dr. Rawlings reported that that as many as 25% of his responders have experienced a negative or hellish near-death experience, which somewhat suspiciously uh, was higher than any reported before any of the researcher. Now, because of this, his work's been very criticized by um, um, other researchers because Rawlings has fundamentalist Christian beliefs. Um, Dr. Sebaum, who is one of the leading near-death experience uh, documenters and researchers, uh, he's who mostly I quote in many of these uh, uh, findings, um, very critical of him. Um, 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 is very critical uh, is Rawlings because Rawlings says that the reason most other near-death experience reporters don't experience these hellish near-death experiences 
because most researchers are not involved in medical resuscitation. This is not true. Most of the people involved in near-death experience research now are involved, mostly cardiologists at this point. Um, Sabon points out, in fact, that Rawlings has never provided any statistics to substantiate this current claim. And Dr. Sabon, who's never come across a case of frightening near-death experience, has described Rawlings' research as a curious combination of medical facts, religious opinion, and poorly documented near-death experiences. However, he says, although comparatively rare, frightening near-death experiences do seem to occur, and reports of them have been gathered by other and more objective researchers. And some more reliable statistics regarding their frequency um, found that about 1% seemed, of people seem to experience negative or hellish near-death experiences. Um, one which seems to be the meaningless void, um, this involves um, – one involves a woman giving birth to her second child um, – she described her state of mind after several hours as fearful, depressed, and panicky. And finally, she was given nitrous oxide. Um, she recalled traveling upward into darkness and then seeing a small group of black and white circles clicking and alternating in color in a mocking and mechanica mechanical fashion that made fun of her. Your life never existed. Your family never existed. You were allowed to imagine it. It was never there. That's the joke. It was all a joke. Now, interestingly enough, there was a, a drug addict, a young man, who suffered a seizure after an overdose. And he found himself in an environment that he described as, a, as an empty void. As far as he could see, the atmosphere was entirely dingy gray and no relief in this monotonous landscape. Nothing was visible at all except for a disc that was nearby. And the disc was black on one side and white on the other. And it turned back and forth very slowly. And with each reversal, there was a clicking sound. And that sound was the only sound, and the turning of the disc was the only movement in the environment. He felt totally isolated and alone in a heavy gray void. He felt the same scene would go on for a very long time, perhaps eternity. This clicking disc, hmm. Now, the hellish near-death experiences, um, um, out of uh, about two or 300 reports of near-death experiences that um, Dr. Grayson and Dr. Bush, two other researchers, reported, out of two or 300, only two or three um, who responded described their experiences as hellish. Um, one was reported by a man who suffered two cardiac arrests. Um, he said, it really was like all the images I'd ever had of hell. I was being barbecued. I was wrapped in tinfoil, basted and roasted. Occasionally, I was basted by, by devils sticking their basting syringe with great needles into my flesh and injecting my flesh with red-hot fat. I was also rolled from side to side with long forks that the devils used to make sure I was being well and truly roasted. I wanted to call out, but no sound would come. It felt as if my brain or consciousness was buried deep within me. It was too deeply embedded for either of them to hear, hear me or even to make it work. I was overcome with a feeling of utter doom and helplessness. That's probably enough of these hellish near-death experiences. Now, I'll tell you that the psychological profile 
that the doctors reported of these people were that almost invariably these were people who were socially uh, they practiced social avoidance. They were disconnected from people. They were usually angry loners. Um, they um, had no friends, no close family, uh, usually single, had no real interests in life. They were people who worked, went home, watched TV, drank. After they had the experiences, though, their lives turned around, and they, they became more connected, more interested in people, more empathetic, more compassionate. Um so there may have been a reason why they had the hellish experiences. They had no connection to people. So what we'd like to do, let's go to, um, well, there were a number of similar components to these. There was the feeling of panic, out-of-body experience, entering a black void, sensing an evil force, entering a hell-like environment. In the case of the void, they were clicking and spinning black and white disks. Um, so... Uh, you know, enough of that. Most of us are people who uh, probably will never enter the hell void um, upon our death. So uh, let's have station identification, and we're going to come up back and look at near-death experiences across different cultures, which I think we'll find very interesting. So let's have some station identification. The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include the Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour, Catherine Ironwood and Conjurman Ollie, Sundays 3 to 4.30, the Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays 5 to 6, and the Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix Le Fay, Fridays 6 to 7, all time specific, add three hours for Eastern, Sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. And we're back. For reasons of my own, um, which probably make no sense, I want to look at a Near-death experiences is recorded by natives, Native Americans and um, Africans and Islanders first, and then we'll look. Well, I'll tell you why. Because uh, one, when I've discussed near-death experiences with people, uh, and we talk about going into the light and all this, I say, well, that's cultural. You know, that's uh, people playing out myths. Even though um, many people experience near-death experiences that are utterly counter to what they learned in church, and it's pan-cultural. It, uh, Christians, uh, Jews, um, uh, atheists, they, they all seem to experience the same series of events. What about when you go to non-Christian cultures? Um, well, let's look at Native Americans. Um, lots of stories of near-death experiences um, from Native American accounts. And uh, so there was a fellow who uh, in a book written in 1825 uh, that's called Travels in the Central Portion of the Mississippi Valley, H.R. Uh, Schoolcraft. And there are two tales that were gathered uh, from uh, Native Americans. Um, there was a Chippewa leader who was shot in battle, and he saw his warriors mourn him at the funeral, and they left. He leaped out of his body to follow his friends, and he was trying to get their attention. He went, hey, 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 wait for me. So he returned to the camp. He also tried to get his wife's attention, but 
there was no use. Nobody could see him. He realized at that point he was a ghost. And so as Schoolcraft writes, foiled thus in every attempt to make himself known, the warrior chief began to reflect upon what he had heard in his youth, that the spirit was sometimes permitted to leave the body and wander about. He reflected that possibly his body may have remained upon the field of battle while his spirit only accompanied his returning friends. So apparently he decided to return to his body, and it took four days, and he came to the outskirts of the battlefield where a, uh, a moving fire blocked his path. You know, we're assuming this is like the, uh, the entity of light, the moving fire. After leaping through the fire, he woke up alive, and he told this story to his people uh, when he returned to camp. Then there's another tale uh, about a village chief who died, and he traveled through paradise, which, according to him, had beautiful groves, um, clear skies, sun, sunny all the time, and so many animals that hunting was uh, always good. And then he went to the village of the dead, and he returned to his grave to get his gun, I guess to go hunting. And uh, on his way, he met a large number of people carrying funeral items. It was a procession of the recently dead on the way to the village of the dead. And when he reached his grave, he jumped through a line of fire blocking his way, and in the effort came alive, and he was thus able to relate his story to everybody. Now, in the 30s, Black Elk, more about him later, I'll tell you some stuff about Black Elk, who was a shaman of the Sioux Nation. Many of you have heard of him. He, uh, uh, there's a famous book about, about his life called Black Elk Speaks, and um, in one chapter of that book, Black Elk describes uh, a near-death experience happened in 1890 after he collapsed during a dance. Now, these dances went on for days. And uh, uh, my own ancestor, Dragon Canoe, died in a, after dancing all night in a victory dance uh, during the uh, Southeastern uh, Indian Wars. His uh, brother, Turtle at Home, was coming back from uh, with good news, he said, "We got the Chippewa. We got the Crow on our side for these, uh, you know, take on the army." And he stayed up all night dancing. He was in his late fifties, and he died apparently of heart failure from dancing all night after after fighting for weeks. So these dances went on sometimes for days and days. So uh, Black Elk was dancing during a dance. These were uh, ordeals. You know, you, you you just dance and dance and dance and dance until you collapse. So. Uh, he he collapsed during a dance and it's not really clear in his description if those around him thought he was dead or not but um, he says after a while I began to feel very odd first my legs seemed to be full of ants and I was dancing with my eyes closed as the others did suddenly it seemed that I was swinging off the ground and not touching it any longer there was no fear of this just a growing happiness I must have fallen down but I felt as though I'd fallen off a swing when it was going forward, and I was floating headfirst through the air. There was a ridge right in front of me, and I thought I was going to run into it, but I went right over it. On the other side of the ridge, I could see a beautiful land where many, many people were camping in a great circle. I could see that they were happy and had plenty. The air was clear and beautiful with a living light that was everywhere. I floated over the teepees and began to come down feet first at the center of the hoop, where I could see a beautiful tree, all green and full of flowers. 
When I touched the ground, two men were coming toward me, and they wore holy shirts made and painted in a certain way. They came to me and said, It's not yet time to see your father, who is happy. You have work to do. They told me to return at once, and then I was out in the air again, floating fast as before. When I came right over the dancing place, the people were still dancing, but it seemed that they were not making any sound. Then I fell back into my body, and as I did, I heard voices all around and above me, and I was sitting on the ground. Many were crowding around asking me what vision I'd seen. Now, Geronimo, before he died uh, in the early 1900s, um, was another Native American. The uh, memoirs of the Native Americans' chiefs are few and far between Black Hawk, uh, Black Elk, Geronimo. There's just a few. And Geronimo's is a very good one. Um, and he dictated his memoirs. And Geronimo also describes a near-death experience. And um, uh, Geronimo said that, uh, not his, but some, when he heard, he said, uh, once when living in San Carlos Reservation, another Indian told me that while lying unconscious on the battlefield, He'd actually been dead and had passed into the spirit land. He said, first he came to a mulberry tree growing out from a cave in the ground. Before this cave, a guard was stationed, but when he approached without fear, the guard let him pass. He descended into the cave, sliding rapidly down its steep side into a darkness. He landed in a narrow passage running due westward through a canyon which gradually grew lighter and lighter until he could see as well as if it had been daylight. But there was no sun. Finally, he came to a section of the passage that was wider for a short distance, and then closing abruptly, continued in a narrow path. He continued to follow the narrow passage, emerging into a section beyond which he could see nothing. The further walls of the section were clashing together at regular intervals with tremendous sounds, but when he approached, they stood apart until he had passed. After this, he seemed to be in a forest and following the natural draws, which led westward, soon came into a green valley where there were many Indians camped and plenty of game. He said that he saw and recognized many whom he had known in his life and that he was sorry when he was brought back to consciousness. So in these Native American accounts, we still see, we still see Many of the components of the Western European-inspired near-death experiences, including out-of-body experiences, encountering a barrier, traveling to another world, contact with the deceased. We don't see a life review, and there's a reason for that, by the way. Um, uh, going through darkness, passing through the underworld or a tunnel of some sort. Um Many of the same experiences. Now, there's a reason why there's not a life review, and we'll we'll talk about that if we have time. We'll certainly will next week. Now, um, if we go to uh, the the Maoris in New Zealand, um, uh, Michael King, who was a historian, uh, recounted a tale um, of stories told by Nya, who is a Maori woman thought to be over a hundred years old. And when she was just a girl, just over school age, um, she that was when she just first saw the very first white men. Um, 
And uh, she said she became seriously ill for the only time in my life. I became so ill that my spirit actually passed out of my body. My family believed I was dead because my breathing stopped. They took me to the um, the Mare, which is apparently um, um, a land where you go, a place where they laid out sick people, laid out my body and began to call people for the funeral. Meanwhile, in my spirit, I had hovered over my head, then left the room and traveled northward toward the tail of the fish. I passed over the Wakito River, across the Mankau, over Nagati Watau, uh, Nagafui, Terawa, and Te Apori, until at last I came to Te Rewange Wara, the leaping off place of spirits. I cleansed myself in the weeping spring and then descended to a ledge from which hung Te Aka, the Pohokatokawa route. Here I crouched. Below me was Maranaku, the entrance to the underworld, covered by a curtain of seaweed. I began to karanga to let my tapuna know I had come, which means she began to call to let her ancestors know she was ready to enter the land of the dead. Then I prepared to grasp the root and slide down the entrance, but a voice stopped me. It was Mahuta, the Maori god of the forest, he asked. Ko'au, I said, it is I, Nagahitakita. Who do you seek? He questioned me further. My parents, my old people, I have come to be with my tapuna. They're not here, said Mahuta. They do not want you yet. Eat nothing and go back where you have come from till they're ready. Then I shall send for you. So I did not leap off. I rose and returned to my body and my people in Wakato. I passed over all the places and things I'd seen on my way. My family and those who had assembled from Wahai for the Tangi were most surprised when I breathed again and set up. So it is that I live on. Because the spirits of my dead will not claim me, I shall not die until they do. So we see the uh, the uh, encounter to the subterranean underworld. Um, if her NDE had lasted a little bit longer, she'd have gone through that tunnel, man. Um, barriers uh, in the form of the curtain of seaweed, the encounter with the otherworldly other being, all over the world, the same commonalities. So, and the order to return, you're not ready yet. Order to return. There is a pattern to this thing. Now, why is there not a life review? Well, well, and as for the tunnel, um, sociologists who have actually studied the near-death experience across cultures, uh, they say that have argued that certain cultural factors are going to influence how the experience is described, not how it's experienced, but how it's described, um, and what features of the experience are likely to be considered important and which ones may not be. Uh, and he argues that in a settled and developed society, a passage through darkness with a growing light in the distance is likely to be described in architectural terms as a tunnel. Although you see in many of the Western accounts, the transitional period is simply described as the passage through darkness. In an arboreal kingdom, forests, it's going to be seen as a passage through dark woods. So if the description of the NDE are in largely metaphorical terms, we shouldn't be surprised, especially given the fact that the near-death experience is very often described as impossible to put into words, that it's going to be put into uh, terms that are uh, mundane. Um, now, this is very interesting, why I, why I want to put out why there's no life review. 
James Kelleher, who is a sociologist, argues that there, there are cultural reasons for the absence of the life review in accounts from societies of hunter-gatherers and herdsmen. Historic religions such as Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism emphasize the development of the moral self. These religions actively appeal to notions of consciousness, and conscious, conscious places great importance on past through and action in the process of self-evaluation. But in the shamanistic religions of North America, Australia, Pacific Islands, there is not such a sharp moral distinction between the self and the world. Uh, Collier points out that the psychology of the Australian Aborigines, for example, is based on much less internalizing of social sanctions. They have very good opinions of themselves. They're easygoing and fear the social consequences of transgressions much more than private guilt or remorse. They obey their laws because they fear being caught. You know, so so do we, but we're more hypocritical about it, right? Um, so Collier describes some of the early encounters between Westerners and Aborigines. He says, when Christian missionaries began their proselytizing practices among the Arunda Aborigines, these missionaries told the Arunda that they were all basically sinful and wicked and needed forgiveness before God. In response to this view, the Arunda retorted with great indignation, Arunda and Karaka Mara, which means the Arunda are all good. These were hardly a people who would seek a life review in evaluative terms or need a cultural group that would be impressed by a moral review of their deeds. See, they live in the present. Now, I will tell you that um, uh, there's a story Wallace Black Elk told about Christian missionaries who came to proselytize among the Native Americans. And he said, well, you accept Jesus or you go to hell. And they said, well, what about – and they started weeping. And he said, well, why are your elders weeping? He said, well, we're weeping for all of our uh, forefathers, our thousands and thousands of forefathers who are in hell now because they didn't know about Jesus. They go, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you see, every man is judged by his lights. They didn't know about this, so – you know, the good people went to heaven, and he said, so you mean before this, all my people went to heaven? And go, yes, yes. He says, so, but now after this, if my people don't accept Jesus, they're going to hell. He goes, yes. And, he said, and so they all talk and said, my people want to know, why did you do this terrible thing to us? Why? <laughs> what, did we, what, what did we do to deserve this punishment? Uh, the same thing, you know, the uh, Native Americans thought, you know, we, we, we were good before now. Now you're telling us we're evil. <laughs> so uh, this idea of a life review only occurs when you think you need it. You know, there's a moral or ethical um, uh, sense in terms of your past, present, and future. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Um, it's, um, to me, just fascinating, these elements no matter what time, what historical event, no matter how you're raised, the near-death experience has commonalities. How? We'll examine it next week. We'll look at both sides, the believer and the non-believer. This is, again, your jovial Reverend John St. Germain. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, episode 147, can you dig it? We're heading for 150. And... Um, Stay with us. We have more. See you next week.